wanted to share a conversation I had with Dr. Lawrence Casalino, a family medicine physician with a 20-year career in independent practice who's then completed a PhD in health policy and has proceeded to have another 20-year career. He now serves as the chief of the Division of Health Economics and Policy at the Weill Cornell School of Medicine. During my conversation with him, I asked him what he would want the general public to know when it comes to consolidation in primary care. Here's what he had to say. Well, I think people at least should think about, do they want their doctor to work for a large national corporation? I don't think people would be that concerned if their doctor is working for their local hospital. They might be a little more concerned if they thought their doctor was working for a large national publicly traded for-profit hospital system. They might be they might be concerned if they thought their doctor was working for a health insurance company. They might very much be concerned if they thought their doctor was working for a private equity firm that had to somehow make 20% profit a year. They might wonder, well, where are profit going to come from? I'm the, I'm the patient. You know? So I, I think that's what I would ask people. Who do they want their physician to be employed by? My name is Lolita Abhankar. I'm a family physician, and from Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal, where we take a closer look at how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care practices and what that could mean for our healthcare system. My conversation with Dr. Casalino touched on things that we've talked about earlier in this series. Facility fees, what competition in primary care could look like, and how models of efficiency are regulated in primary care. Per Dr. Casalino, the crux of the consolidation issue is that it is... generally assumed that large medical groups and possibly even better groups that are integrated with hospitals uh, will have better outcomes for patients. And I'm sure that that's true for the, for the best of such large groups or large integrated groups. The data isn't very strong one way or the other, but so far, there isn't convincing proof that the average large organization gets better quality for patients, I would say, than the average small practice. What, what there is very strong evidence on is larger medical groups get paid a lot higher prices than physicians in smaller practices get paid. And physicians who work for hospitals, especially for large dominant hospitals or hospital systems get paid a lot more by insurers than you or I would if we were just in a practice just down the street. We've talked a lot about facility fees and negotiation power when comparing income of large systems versus smaller practices in prior episodes. Dr. Casalino believes that... If we had a a high-functioning healthcare market, then you could say, well, you know, let the best type of practice win. Large, small, hospital-employed, independent, private equity-owned, health insurer-owned. Whatever, whatever outcompetes the others, that should be the dominant form of practice. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the way markets work. Now, unfortunately, healthcare markets are hard to set up so that they really reward good care and, and efficient care, high quality care. What they really reward, as I just mentioned, is, is negotiating leverage. So it's not true that the type of practice that provides value to patients or anybody else to society will necessarily win out in the competition. There is one major advantage of large organizations that I want to mention. They are big enough that in theory, at least, although they're not necessarily willing to do this, they can take a lot of financial risk for the quality and cost of care they provide. So the extreme of that is to say, let's give a large medical group or a medical group in a hospital, basically a budget. You have X amount of money this year to take care of this group of patients. And if you spend less, you get to keep 
what you've saved or you get to keep part of what you've saved. We'll keep the rest, the, uh, the health insurer or Medicare, whoever. And we'll also measure quality and cost. You'll have to have a good quality, good patient experience for us to keep giving you this budget. The advantage of that is, first of all, obviously, it doesn't give physicians or hospitals an incentive to try to provide as many services as possible. And secondly, and equally important in my mind, is it's just saying, here's the money. You take care of patients the best way you can. So if you think it's good to use telemedicine or in-person visits or have nurses or other people do things that they can't bill for, only doctors can bill for, in a fee-for-service environment, those things don't get done because you don't get paid for them. You also don't get paid for investing in improving quality and these organized processes that I just mentioned. When you have a budget, essentially, and you can do whatever you want with the money, then, for example, you may think, well, what's the way to take care of my patient who has severe congestive heart failure and lives in a very hot apartment and during a hot summer gets admitted for their congestive heart failure every week or two? Uh, Let's just give them an air conditioner. Now, no one does that in fee-for-service because you have to pay for it yourself. You never get the money back. But in the kind of thing I'm talking about, it, it might make sense to, you would have an investment to just get them an air conditioner. So this could be the kind of holy grail of payment and organization. It is where a lot of policymakers want to get us. We're very far from that now. I'm going to take a quick tangent here and go back to the conversation I had in the first episode with Sean Martin, the CEO of the American Academy of Family Physicians. He did advocate for another form of payment, capitation. Capitation is, like what Dr. Castellino was saying, where practices are simply paid a lump sum to take care of their panel of patients. I think it is a pure population-based capitated payment that you just give to the practice and you ask them to take care of their community based upon you know, some pretty well-vetted and well-understood and risk-adjusted methodologies. And, and I think we're in a different place. I think when they tried this in the 80s and 90s, there was no, I mean, one, the data sources were so limited. Two, there was zero transparency. You know, we're just in a different place today. I mean, we basically know the life expectancy based upon diagnosis at any point in time. We we know what the healthcare needs of these people are going to be from a predictive modeling type of perspective. Like we can just do capitated population-based payment much differently than we ever could. This is in contrast to value-based payment models where in order to get shared savings, practices have to prove that they're creating value for the patients. The problem I have with value-based payment is it suggests that primary care in and of itself does not have value. Primary care is the highest value service in our healthcare system, and you don't need to measure it to understand that. It is just good for people, good for communities, and good for the healthcare system. And you should just pay for it, like just finance it and kind of get out of these gimmicks. And I I take exception, and I've been saying this vocally, we have always viewed primary care through the prism of what primary care could do for somebody else. So what it could do to reduce, you know, costs for this or this or this. And, And I think that's just the wrong framing. Primary care is just good for people and we should pay for it. Dr. Casalino has been spending a lot of time over the last few years looking at a newer phenomenon of private equity in the primary care space. It's starting to get increased attention. For me, learning about private equity was fascinating. Some say that capital is capital, and one of the truths of our current health system is that primary care 
needs a lot of capital. But is private equity the way to go? The way private equity works basically is private equity partners, they take money from pension funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds from companies, very wealthy individuals, and they promise to invest it. And they say they're going to aim for a 20% annual return on investment. Pretty good. You know, much better than you can get on an annual average basis from the stock markets. And they can't really do that through getting more efficient. You can't really, I mean, the practices are not so inefficient that they're leaving 20% of their money on the table. They mostly hope to get it through sale. And they, they expect to sell things that they, they buy within three to five years. So there's intense pressure on them to basically try to grow things as much as, get them as big as possible. And then hopefully they'll find someone else who who pay a lot more than they paid and they get their 20%. And remember, that's not 20% total return, that's annually. Typically, that private equity firm will take a 60, 70% stake in a practice. The physicians will have the rest. That means that when the, the second sale comes along in three to five years, the physicians will get you know, 30, 40% of that money, potentially. It's called the second bite of the apple in the, in, in the industry. Physicians, of course, will have little or no say about who they're sold to the second time around. The private equity firms will typically offer a lot of money to the physician partners. That money is partly the private equity fund's money, but most of it actually is from loans that the private equity firms take out. So this is highly leveraged. Maybe 20% of what they put into the practice is their own money. This can vary, but that's a figure that gets thrown around. And the rest comes from loans that they get from banks or whoever. Well, who is responsible for paying off those loans? Actually, not the private equity company. It's the practice. So in some extent, you get given a lot of money and then they have to pay it back. There is an element of that. And there are practices that have gone bankrupt because they can't pay back the loan. Typically, in a, in a market, private equity will buy a, a so-called platform practice. So they'll buy a relatively large, relatively well-managed practice that has a good reputation. If it's a dermatology practice, for example, which is one of the specialties they've invested a lot in. So maybe they'll pay them 12 times what they value the practice at, let's just say. So that can be a lot of money for the doctors who want to sell. Then they go and they say to a two-physician dermatology practice, well, do you want to join this larger group? We'll get you bigger rate, better rates, better payment rates, so on and so forth. We'll take care of the business side of things and so on and so forth. And they may be able to buy this small practice for you know two to four times its assessed value, let's just say. They get it relatively cheaply, but the minute that they buy it, it's now part of the bigger thing. So now it's worth 12 times or at least more. So they've increased the value of it right there a lot just with a stroke of a pen. And then they can go on doing that. And then they can sell the whole thing, hopefully in three to five years for 14 times, even though they bought a lot of their practices for two times, four times. There's room for conflict between the younger doctors and the older doctors in the practice in these kind of deals, because the older doctors may see this as the best way of basically leading to retirement. And getting some money out of all the work they put into their practice. It used to be you work really hard for 40 years, you build a practice up, at the end, you know, other doctors buy it. I don't think there are very many young physicians coming out of training who want to join small practices. This makes it very hard to recruit anybody to join your practice. You're competing to, to against hospitals, private equity firms, insurers to recruit people. It's uh, You can't offer them as much generally as other types of organizations can. And offers. Private equity firms don't really want the young doctors to leave, though, because that would decrease the value of their investment. So I think every contract's different, and they, they try to make it attractive to the young doctors 
as well. Ultimately, private equity hasn't really shaped the primary care landscape the same way it's shaped specialties like anesthesiology, orthopedics, dermatology, and now even obstetrics and gynecology. While there are well-intentioned individuals in these fields, there is a ruthlessness to ensuring a profit year after year. In primary care, we've already seen some consolidation of markets on a smaller scale in order to, you guessed it, have negotiating power with insurance companies. And again, like acquisitions of larger hospital or health systems, there's not a lot of scrutiny or even awareness about these smaller purchases and how they can disadvantage populations in smaller areas. I wanted to circle back to the issue of recruitment for independent primary care practices. During my conversation with Dr. Romero and Dr. Guerrero, the full-spectrum rural doctors at the Gila Valley Clinic in Safford, Arizona, they shared their story of struggling to recruit another physician and how ultimately getting a rural health clinic designation turned out to be what helped them stay sustainable, despite all the challenges to get the designation. My name is Gail Guerrero Tucker, and I'm a family physician in Safford, Arizona. We are rural docs. We do full spectrum care here, including obstetrics. And unusual for Arizona, we're still doing operative obstetrics at this point in time, including ICU and different things. So I I consider us the good old fashioned family doc. I'm Kathy Romero. I've been here 21 years now. So a big part of this story is that in 2017, we were facing the need to, to recruit another doctor. Dr. Susan Jones, one of the longtime partners in the practice, was looking to cut back on clinical time as a slow transition towards retirement. So we thought, okay, we're never going to be able to do this and pay a new doctor what we pay ourselves. That's just the truth. Or it. even what's, what's right in right. what fits in the world, because we were underpaying ourselves and we couldn't afford to pay somebody a reasonable wage. Yeah. So how are you going to recruit somebody who doesn't even know where Safford, Arizona is? Or maybe they do and it's nice, but somebody somewhere else is going to pay twice as much as what we could afford to pay a new doctor. And so we decided we knew a few other doctors in the state who had gone to larger corporations or that they had been approached and had been bought out. So, you know, consolidated. And interesting, one of them I just found out a few months ago, uh, decided I hate this, I'm getting out and now works for an FQHC. So that seemed like maybe a a shiny object that might be something worth considering, but we really liked the fact that we could make our own decisions. Sometimes we would decide to do something that wasn't financially lucrative, but that we knew was right. And that was our money. So if we decide we're gonna lose money on something, it's our money, we could do that. And we did not like the idea of that. We, We figured too that they might, a larger entity might say, hospital medicine doesn't pay for itself. You have to stop doing it. And we really in our gut did not want to do that either, unless it was our decision. And so that began basically a two, a little more than two year long process of becoming a rural health clinic. At first, we weren't sure if it was even viable. When we looked it up, like on the state website, technically our numbers did not put us into a score that was qualifying. But then there was this other path called a medically underserved area, MUA. And it was weird because our area is densely populated with doctors because we're right here at the hospital. We're in Safford. But when you look at the whole area, including the reservation and Marinci, the mining community, and a lot of the rural areas outside of here, the way that they calculated the score was just based on like your zip code. Well, come on, like your zip code, really? So uh, with connections with people at the state, 
we basically were able to have them rescore the two county area of Graham and Greenlee County. And when they did that, the whole area, figuring in all the primary care doctors in the population, and there's other things like you know, newborn statistics and poverty levels and things like that, we did qualify as an MUA. So that was huge. That took probably six months just mm-hmm. to find out the answer to that. And if the answer to that had been no, we probably would be having a very different conversation with you right now. But the answer was yes. And so just through phone calls and researching, we found a consultant that said, oh yeah, you know, this this sounds like we could do this. We could do this with you. And we're like, okay, it's going to cost, you know, whatever it was, $10,000. And so we're like, $10,000. But when they did all the numbers, it was mind blowing what it would do our practice financially. And the cool thing too, was that we had always, Dr. Jones has always been a person who said, just do the right thing, just do the right thing. It'll all work out. And so all through these years where through Medicaid, we're getting paid less and less every year. Like seriously, it's just ridiculous compared to what private insurances are paying, which still isn't very generous, but we kept doing access. So access is the Arizona version of Medicaid, just to clarify. We weren't going to stop doing access because they paid badly. Um, and so now guess what? As an RHC with access, you get paid really well. So that was like, see, you do the right thing and it all works out. One of the things that was really important during all of these discussions that we had, because we were looking at you know, three prongs, should we consider being consolidated by somebody? Should we approach the hospital and see if they want to take us in as, their, as a primary care practice? Or should we do this? Because we had to do something for financial viability or stop growing or stop something. We had to make big decisions. But the thing that was the most important about all of this was that our ideals for our practice matched up with rural health center ideals, which was don't exclude insurance programs, take care of everyone. You know, all comers are are welcome. And we had made financial decisions over the years not to cut out certain insurances that maybe we should have because they were financially bad decisions, but nobody else in the community was taking that insurance and that was not right. So this this helped us stay on our own path and be able to pay a decent wage to a doctor. In certain states like Arizona, cuts to Medicaid have led to decreased financial viability of independent primary care practices as well. This was years and years ago where Access, Arizona version, was actually paying pretty well. And there was some budgetary problem, so there was a 15% cut that was supposed to be temporary. And I think that 15% cut never went away. And so here we are, you know, five, seven years later, and we still have that plus the 15% cut. It's based on what the state legislature decides is going to be allowable, not necessarily the per visit rate, but this is how much access is given to take care of all the access patients in the state. And then they dole it out to like AZ Complete and University and the different access plans. And then those plans decide what they're going to cover and how much they'll pay for it. So it's kind of this weird thing that's based on a state budget Uh, sort of taxable thing. And we have no control over it. I mean, you know, Safeway can say, oh, we're going to raise the price of milk. And you go into Safeway, you have to pay more for milk, period, or you just don't get milk from them. But we don't have that ability. And any insurance company with United, we can't say, oh, hey, we just gave all of our employees a dollar raise because minimum wage went up. Now we need to make, uh, you know, $5 more for every office visit to correct for that. Getting proper reimbursement for primary care visits ends up being the biggest barrier to sustainability especially for practices who make an effort to take Medicaid. Like Sean Martin said when I spoke to him earlier, 
we underfund primary care in this country generally. So to use a parity between, you know, one insurance company and Medicare and a Medicaid managed care, those are just all the wrong benchmarks to me because all of those benchmarks are underfunding primary care today. So we're, we're really just going from really underfunding to simply underfunding. And I, I think we just need a new approach about how we should finance primary care in this country and what it means to provide comprehensive and continuous primary care. And primary care, is, as you know, is relatively inexpensive as compared to other services in the healthcare system, but we should be over-investing in primary care and, you know, not just trying to meet the, the minimal threshold of, of parity. Dr. Kyle Leggett, who I spoke with earlier in the series as well, agrees. It's right. I mean, this whole idea of payment parity between Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance companies is just another way of saying, hey, let's minimally fix the broken system, right? It's, it's small fries. As we've discussed over the past few episodes, practice reimbursement through insurance companies and payment models are crucial in determining fairness for how independent practices get paid and how financially sustainable they are. Whether that is to move towards capitation, value-based care, or to get off the grid and do direct primary care, the general consensus is that fee-for-service doesn't lend itself to support primary care practices, especially when they're competing against large conglomerates that can actually negotiate for higher prices, even though the services are the same. In the current market, it makes sense that there are a lot of buyouts of smaller independent primary care practices, whether through vertical or horizontal consolidation. And while some of these mergers and acquisitions make sense for the healthcare system and for patients, many of them may need additional scrutiny. I'm really excited for you all to hear the next episode, where I learn a lot about antitrust in medicine, specifically when it comes to how some of these larger laws and regulations pertain to smaller practice mergers and acquisitions. I hope you'll tune in. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, or comment wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, don't forget to share and spread the word about this and the other podcasts in our fellowship series. From Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you next time. Music, melody, and production by So Brown and Jack Mason. 